Well, what a blessing to be here with you all on Easter morning. Just a quick announcement, uh, since it wasn't in the bulletin, I just wanted to remind everybody that we're going to be starting our spring missions emphasis next Sunday. We're going to kick it off uh, with the team from Family Life Network will be here on the 11th. And then during the week, we'll have something special during the, uh, the Wednesday night ABF. And then also on the 18th, we will have the Sanfords. Uh, Steve Sanford will be here from Ethnos 360. So just wanted to remind everybody of that. Save the date. We're really looking forward to it. Also just wanted to uh, share with you what a privilege it is to uh, be behind the scenes with our missions committee team. Um, a great group of people, but we also get the privilege of seeing God work in the hearts of our missionaries. And since we came to you a couple of weeks ago, um, letting you know the, the status of missions, um, the Lord has worked in the hearts of so many of you. I've had so many people approach me, um, and uh, they are working and uh, uh, it making uh, special donations to the missions account. And I just tell you, it just it. Um, it's touching, and so that's one of the privileges of being on that missions committee is seeing the Lord work in the hearts of you. So I just wanted to thank you and encourage you for that. And uh, to let you know, because several people asked me, it was my bad, I forgot to uh, let you all know, uh, especially some of the newer families, when you're making out a donation for missions, all you have to do is in the memo, just write missions. And then Dale Vance will take care of the rest, and he'll make sure it gets to the right place. So uh, God bless you, and uh, uh, we'll uh, continue here with uh, Ken with Communion. Good morning, everybody. It's, it's good to see everyone here uh, as we are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we also have a special opportunity today, and this doesn't always happen because Easter isn't always the, the first Sunday of the month. And uh, a lot of times uh, we, we will always take communion on Maundy Thursday, but today is an opportunity on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Day, to also have an opportunity uh, to take communion together. Um, and I, just for a, a real quick uh, explanation of what this is all about, um, and if you haven't got your little cup of juice and wafer, it's right out in the back. If you need to grab one of those while I'm talking, I'll understand. Um, but today we have an opportunity, as we remember the, the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that he showed that he had complete power over sin and death and that he is the rightful ruler of all things, and that is something that gives us great excitement, it gives us great celebration but his resurrection couldn't have happened unless he gave up his life and gave a sacrifice for us, which was himself. You know, typically we think about this on Good Friday, but we think about this all throughout Easter weekend. We think about the fact that Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve for all the sins we've committed, all the times we've turned our back on God and gone our own way and lived in selfish and sinful ways. And with all of that, we were born into sin, and we had no hope of any future. We had no hope of a relationship with God. And God himself came to be a man through Jesus, as Jesus Christ. And Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a death on a cross, a horrible death, physically painful, but also spiritually took on the punishment and the wrath of God for sin for those who would receive him. And as God, as Jesus did that, today we remember that as we're going to have the opportunity to remember the, the wafer and the, and the juice reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken, his human body that he came to break, to, to suffer for us 
for our forgiveness so that if we receive him and what he did on our behalf, if we truly receive that by the grace that he's given us, that it will transform everything. It will give us new hope, new life. And then not only did he die, but then as we celebrate today, he rose again. He's, he's not still dead. He's alive. And we celebrate him and we worship him today because he is our living Lord. But again, that death that he died, he died for our forgiveness. And so when we come together to take communion, that's what we're doing. We're remembering what he has done. We're remembering who Jesus is, what he has done on our behalf. And we're celebrating that each and every month that we do this. And so we have an opportunity to do that today on all days, a wonderful day to do it on Easter Sunday, as we remember the death that then would lead to the resurrection that we celebrate today. And so in just a moment, I'm going to give everybody just a couple minutes to just think and reflect, uh, because I don't want Easter to go by and have it just be a bunch of busyness, family, dressing up and coming to church, because that's what we do. Like, I understand all of that is fun and important, but I want us to really just take a minute and think about why we're really here. We're really here because Jesus died for us, because Jesus rose again, and Jesus saved us. And so as I say that, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. Maybe all this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. When we come to communion, the only thing that we ask, if you are a guest with us today, is you can partake of communion with us and remember the death of Jesus on your behalf if you have a relationship with Jesus If you don't, we would ask you not to take that today, but we'd ask you to think about and pray about and talk to somebody about how you can have a relationship with Jesus. But if you have received Jesus, no matter if this is your first time with us or if you've been here for 40 years, we would love to have you take communion with us today as we remember the death of Jesus together as a body. And so what we're going to do right now is just give you a few minutes um, and uh, we don't have any music, so you're just going to have to do it in silence. That's fine. Um, Just take a few minutes to think and reflect upon the death of Jesus, his resurrection, and how good and wonderful he truly is. So I'll just give you a few minutes to do that now. First, if everyone would take the wafer, the bread, and this is to symbolize the body that Jesus broke for us. In just a moment, I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as Paul reminds us what Jesus did on that very last time he had the Passover meal with his disciples. And that's why we continue to do this. Jesus started the example, and now we continue to do it to remember all that he is and all that he's done. But with that, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23... For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And Jesus didn't just end there. Uh, Jesus told his disciples he had broken his body for them. That we, his body has been broken, that he suffered for our sins so that we could be forgiven. But then he goes on and talks about the blood that he shed. The blood that he was to shed that would be what would give us the opportunity to truly be forgiven of our sins. As he shed his blood, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And so he reminds us of that as we read on. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'm going to close our time of communion and prayer in just a moment. And after I'm done praying, we're going to have a special dance uh, on this Easter Sunday that we'd love for you to be able to participate by watching and worshiping along with our dance team. And I would say that too. So if you have children going down to junior church, you might want to wait just a few minutes. They're going to probably want to see this. But then as soon as the dance is over, they can head down. But for now, let's close our portion of communion with prayer. Lord, we do thank you for today. The opportunity again to remember your resurrection and how good and wonderful and powerful you are, that you are the rightful ruler of all and that you've defeated sin and death. You did that by dying for us, by shedding your blood for our forgiveness, by suffering on our behalf. You did all of that for your glory and for our good and we praise you and thank you today for that as we remembered that through this bread and through this juice. We thank you for your gift to us. Nothing that we deserved, nothing that you owed us, but Lord, you did it freely for us. And then also you rose again and showed your power that death wasn't the end for you. And we just pray that you would continue to work in our lives and give us new life through you and your spirit. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Today, Easter Sunday morning, the gospel writers describe a number of emotions as people reacted to the discovery and the news of the empty tomb where Jesus' dead body had been laid on Friday evening. Luke says the women found the stone rolled away, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, and they were perplexed. Mark says they were alarmed. When they saw angels, Luke says they were frightened. After the angel told them Jesus has risen, Matthew says they departed with fear and great joy. Mark says that trembling and astonishment had seized them and they were afraid. When the women told the apostles and a group of other disciples what they had seen, Luke says that the women's testimony seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But then famously, Peter and John ran to the tomb to see for themselves, and Luke says that Peter went home marveling at what had happened. John reports his own reaction as simply, he saw and believed. Mary of Magdala seemed to still be in disbelief. As she wandered around the tomb, Jesus himself approached her, and it seems that her intense weeping prevented her from recognizing him. Then as Jesus came to the apostles, directly demonstrating that he was alive, John says they were glad when they saw the Lord. But my favorite story from that day is how Jesus appeared to the two disciples traveling to Emmaus, recorded for us in Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. These two had heard the women's report, and then they decided to leave Jerusalem and travel on to Emmaus. As they were walking along, they were discussing the events of the weekend, and a man approached them and began walking with them. This man asked them what they'd been discussing. Luke describes their initial reaction to this man in verse 17. And they stood still, looking sad. Then they addressed the man with shock, wondering how it could be possible for someone walking out of Jerusalem on this road, on this day, who wasn't aware of all that had happened over the weekend. The man then asks them to fill him in. Their response begins in the middle of verse 19, and I'll quote their summary in full. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. These men are sad, disappointed, and the testimony of the women has stunned them. And now they don't seem to know what to believe. The man responds with a rebuke and a question, which I'm sure these two men were not expecting. Up to this point, these two men think they're educating this man. They're informing him of what went on over the weekend. And they do give an accurate blow-by-blow account of the events, but they do not understand the significance of the events. The man's response is recorded in verses 25 and 26. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? They were eyewitnesses of the fulfillment of messianic prophecy, but they were too foolish and too slow of heart to believe the scriptures. They said they had hoped Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. They'd hoped he'd been the Messiah. But the man chastises them. Notice that it wasn't that they didn't believe the events they had witnessed or that they didn't believe the testimony of the others about the empty tomb. They didn't understand what their Bible said the Redeemer was supposed to do. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The angel had more gently pointed this out to the women at the tomb. But instead of pointing them to Scripture, the angel reminded them of what Jesus himself had said to them. Luke 24, verses 6 and 7, records the gentle instruction from the angel. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. The word must in the angel's statement, is the same word translated necessary in the man's chastising question on the Emmaus Road. Luke summarizes what happened next on the Emmaus Road in verse 27. What must have been the most amazing Bible study ever began. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Many have said that they wish they could have heard the contents of this teaching. But Luke hasn't recorded that for us. And I think there's an important reason. The Lord really does want us to take responsibility for how we read and understand the Scriptures. He's given us the key here to help us know how to read the Bible, but He hasn't given us the answer key, so to speak. Instead, He's encouraging all of us to open our Bibles and read them with a desire to discover in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. We should be reading the Bible through the Jesus lens. When Jesus later visited with the apostles again, he combined the statement of the angel at the tomb with his own instruction to the two on the Emmaus Road. We read in Luke 24, 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There's that word must again. The focus... The focus points of Jesus' summary to the two on the Emmaus Road was the Messiah's suffering and his entrance into glory. What manner of glory is this? It certainly has something to do with his resurrection. God raised him from the dead with a body of glory or a glorious body as Paul describes it in Philippians 3.21. Let's consider just for a moment Jesus' glory in the Gospels. There are three different events associated with Jesus' glory. There's his resurrection, which we just looked at in Luke 24. Back in Luke 9.26, his glory is connected with Jesus' return. Jesus had said, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Just a few verses after this, there's one more reference to Jesus' glory, and it has to do with his transfiguration. 
Right after Jesus speaks of his future return at the end of history, in Luke 9.27, he adds, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read this statement from Jesus, and the next thing all three gospel writers tell us about is Jesus' transfiguration. Matthew's statement is the fullest. In Matthew 16.28, we read, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Note the association here between Jesus' glory and Jesus' kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. Now back in Luke 9.29 we read, And as He was praying, the appearance of His face was altered and His clothing became dazzling white. Then in verse 32 we read, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. It seems that this is what Jesus was referring to. Peter, James, and John are the ones standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But what they see is Jesus' transfiguration. I think what we can conclude from this is that the transfiguration serves as a preview of Jesus' glory, which will be permanently manifested in His resurrection and His return. But there's one other association to tease out. I drew your attention to the connection between Jesus' glory and Jesus' kingdom here. In other places, Jesus' glory is related to His position on the throne at the right hand of God. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. On another occasion, in Mark 10, 37, James and John want to sit in the two positions next to Jesus in your glory. That is to say, they want to sit on thrones next to Jesus' throne when He is enthroned in His glory. Likewise, as Jesus spoke of His return at the end of history in Matthew 25, 31, He said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. I wonder if you've noticed the language of Daniel 7 in some of these verses. The coming of the Son of Man reflects the coming of one like a Son of Man in Daniel 7.13. Jesus refers to Himself with the title Son of Man around 80 times. No one else refers to Him by this title. Most of the time, people would have heard Him use this phrase and probably thought nothing of it. It is an ambiguous phrase that literally simply means a human being. There's even some evidence that a speaker or a writer could use the phrase in a poetic uh, or rhetorical way to refer to himself, a literary or rhetorical equivalent of saying, I. But when you add the word coming and talk about a kingdom, Daniel 7.13 would have started coming to mind for those who knew their Bible. Most of the verses we associate with the coming of the Son of Man in the Gospels have to do with the second coming. Jesus' return at the end of history. But could it be that some of them actually have to do with Jesus' resurrection and ascension? 
resurrection and enthronement. What does the vision of Daniel, it's Daniel 7 itself communicate? Let's return there now. This Easter Sunday morning, we're concluding our three-part mini-series looking at Daniel 7 as part of our larger trek through the book of Daniel. The message of the whole chapter, Daniel 7, is God rules over the earthly, beastly kingdoms of the world, and he will judge the wicked and establish his kingdom for his people through the Son of Man, even as persecution of God's people increases. Daniel saw this vision that depicted a series of four beasts rising up out of the sea and a heavenly scene with God on the throne and a human-like figure approaching the throne. Daniel doesn't understand the meaning of what he's seeing all by himself, so he asks one of the angels he sees in the heavenly scene in his vision to explain. The angel summarizes the main message of the vision in verses 17 and 18. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. But the heart of the vision is the heavenly scene, the depiction of one like a son of man approaching God's throne and receiving God's everlasting kingdom. And the interpretation the angel gives highlights the place of God's people, the saints, We've looked at the beasts and the horns and the persecution of the saints. Now let's look more closely at the heavenly courtroom scene, beginning in verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Recall from verses 8 and 11 surrounding these two verses, Daniel notes that he was hearing the mouth of the little horn on the fourth beast on earth speaking loudly. While that voice was prattling on, Daniel's attention is drawn to the heavenly scene. The first thing Daniel notes is the presence of thrones, plural. These thrones were not cast down, as the King James Version mistakenly has it. Rather, Daniel sees them set in their proper place. Who are these thrones for? Later, we will see that there appears to be a throne for God, a throne for one like a son of man, and thrones for the saints. But here, at first, only God, the Ancient of Days, sits on His throne. Notice that God's description is human-like as He presents Himself in this vision to Daniel's mind as an old man. Not with the weakness and frailty sometimes associated with old age, but with the signs of wisdom, respectability, and high status that often come with a long life. God depicts himself as wearing white clothing and having white hair, likely symbolizing his absolute purity, his perfect holiness, and his great wisdom. Then Daniel observes all the fire. We normally associate fire with hell, but here fire is characteristic of the heavenly throne room. God's throne, apparently distinct from the other thrones, Daniel says, was fiery flame. God sits on a throne of fire and is not burned. 
And his throne has wheels. It's depicted as a chariot throne, which was common among kings of the ancient world. But for God's throne, the wheels are fire as well. The prophet Ezekiel also received a vision of God's chariot throne, depicting God's glory abandoning the temple in Jerusalem so that it could be destroyed under God's judgment through the Babylonians. Read Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10 to see more intriguing details about the way God depicted his throne to these two prophets. Daniel also observes a stream of fire coming out in front of God and his throne. More literally, this describes a river of fire, and it reminds us of the image of the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. It's interesting to combine the imagery of water and fire this way. A river of fire, a lake of fire, a body of water made of fire. This fiery imagery sets the backdrop of God's fiery judgment. Then Daniel observes a countless multitude of angelic court attendants. Their presence in the vision enhances the glory of the holy judge sitting on his central throne. Notice that they are standing, ready to serve at a moment's notice. They do not sit on the other thrones. Finally, Daniel recognizes the situation as the convening of the heavenly court. Daniel sees the court records, the books, opened up to be reviewed. Apparently, we are to understand these books as recording the deeds that would serve as the evidence that God's judgment would be based on. It's time for the verdict to be pronounced. Daniel then returns his attention back to earth. And as verse 11 indicates, he sees the outworking of the verdict before his eyes. The fourth beast and its loud-mouthed little horn were executed. Then Daniel turns his attention back to the heavenly courtroom, and he sees the arrival in heaven of a human-like figure. Look at verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Whereas Daniel had seen four beasts on earth three of which were like animals Daniel knew from nature, while the fourth one was in a class by itself. In heaven, he sees a figure which was like a human. Why does Daniel describe him like this? I think it's because a human shouldn't be in heaven. A human shouldn't be accompanied by clouds. Everywhere else in the Bible, only God travels with clouds or rides the clouds. Everywhere else in the ancient world, only gods are envisioned as riding clouds. This figure looks like a man, but acts like God. Daniel doesn't have a mental category for what he's seeing, so he does the best he can to describe it. He is one like a son of man, like a descendant of Adam. In our first look at this passage a couple of weeks ago, we observed the connection with Genesis 1 here. The picture Daniel's given in this vision is all wrong. According to God's design for creation, Daniel sees beasts having dominion, ruling the world. But God created humanity, Adam and Eve, and later their descendants, and gave them the right to rule. 
Adam and Eve were to be God's vice regents, ruling over the beasts of this world. They gave up their right to rule when they obeyed a beast that spoke, a crafty serpent. Thus, the vision of the beasts is showing what has become of human dominion. It has become beast-like. But God's design has not been thwarted. Daniel is being shown that God will restore proper dominion to humanity. But, as with all dominion, as with all authority in this world, it must be given by God. That is what Daniel sees in this vision. The one like a son of man came to the Ancient of Days. Notice that. He came to the Ancient of Days. This human approached God's throne. Who would be qualified to approach God's throne? What human could rightfully approach God's very throne in heaven? Only a human who can do what God can do, such as ride the clouds. However, there's also a hint of this human's humility before God. He was presented before the Ancient of Days. He did not force his way in. He did not boastfully march up to the throne like he belonged there. Rather, he enters the heavenly throne room and is escorted to the throne, perhaps by some of the angelic attendants. In verse 14, then, Daniel sees God transfer universal authority over all peoples, nations, and languages to this human The words Daniel uses here reflects Daniel's own words from chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar's words in chapter 4 and Darius' words in chapter 6. All about God's own kingdom. It is the eternal kingdom of God that is being handed over to this human in Daniel's vision. What is going on here? This is the flip side of verses 9 and 10. There, the heavenly judge declared a verdict, a judgment against the fourth beast. Here we see that a verdict was also declared for this human being. He is found worthy to rule the kingdoms of the world. Now, ordinarily, I'd prefer at this point to go take a look at the angel's explanation of this portion of the vision. But since Jesus clearly refers specifically to verses 13 and 14 on some key occasions. I'd like to expand on what he says, and then we'll return to how the angel in Daniel's vision expands this. So let's look at a few more New Testament passages to fill out our understanding of Jesus' usage of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. As we looked at earlier, Jesus speaks of the coming of the Son of Man, But he associates that coming with different events. Most often when we see references to his coming, we assume that it must be referring to his second coming, his return at the end of history. Certainly when the coming referenced involves angels accompanying him and him executing judgment, he is looking ahead to his return. But there are at least a couple of occasions that are difficult to connect with his future return. For example... Consider Matthew 10, 23. As Jesus sent out the twelve to preach and heal and cast out demons, he says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
Here, the coming of the Son of Man sure seems like a reference to something that will happen very, very soon during the lifetime of the disciples and while they were out preaching the gospel in the land of Israel. Jesus' climactic usage of this language, however, comes during his trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, who had just asked the crucial question of Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the blessed God? Mark 14, 62 records his shocking response. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus draws on the language of Daniel 7.13, the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, sandwiched around a reference to Psalm 110.1, where David's Lord, David's future descendant, would be invited to sit enthroned at the right hand of God. Jesus' answer resulted in the high priest leveling the charge of blasphemy against Jesus. Caiaphas surely would have recognized that Jesus was identifying himself as the one like a son of man, Daniel saw in his vision. And he understood that Jesus was claiming to be a human who could do what God can do, who was worthy to receive universal authority from God, and who had the right to share God's sovereignty as his vice-regent over everything. But Jesus is saying even more than this. As if this weren't shocking enough in and of itself, Jesus says to Caiaphas and all the Sanhedrin, all the Jewish leadership, you all will see me take my rightful place. The you in verse 62 is plural, addressing the Jewish leadership more generally. How would they see this? If Jesus is referring to his return at the end of history, then this would be an oblique reference to... They're facing his judgment at the great white throne after his return and after the millennium described at the end of Revelation 20. Or Jesus could be referring to his ascension. Now, the Sanhedrin will not be standing with the disciples watching Jesus go up into heaven on a cloud as described in Acts 1-9. However, they will see the earthly aftermath of Jesus' ascension. This is where we need to remember the correlation between heaven and earth that we talked about over the last couple of weeks. After the Sanhedrin accuses Jesus of blasphemy, they finagle their way into getting him executed by the Roman authorities, representatives of the fourth kingdom in Daniel's vision, by the way. And then Jesus will rise from the dead and leave this earth, going up into heaven with the cloud. What happens next? Well, repeatedly in the New Testament, we are reminded that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But how do we know that it's true? Other than believing their word, which is enough, by the way. Is there earthly proof or evidence that would be visible not only to us believers, but also to the Sanhedrin? Yes. In fact, there are two Lines of evidence, one I'll merely mention, and the other that will become highly important and relevant for the rest of our discussion of Daniel 7 this morning. The first line of evidence that the Sanhedrin will see that demonstrates that Jesus is indeed sitting on his throne at the right hand of God is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, about 30 years later. 
Not all of the Sanhedrin will be alive for that, but many of them would be. The reason this would serve as evidence vindicating Jesus' claims to be the Son of Man of Daniel 7 is that this was the major topic of discussion of Jesus' interrogation prior to Caiaphas asking the condemning question. The Sanhedrin had sought false testimony against Jesus, and the best they could come up with was different people testifying that they had heard Jesus claim that he would destroy and rebuild the temple. Something he did actually say. But the witnesses could not agree on how he said it or what he'd meant by that. And in a very public way, just days before his trial, he had pronounced judgment against the temple as he made quite the ruckus in the court of the Gentiles and blamed the Jewish leadership for transforming the temple into a headquarters for criminals. A den of robbers thus nullifying the purpose of the temple and showing that it was ripe for judgment and destruction. But the second line of evidence is more important. It is the growth and expansion of the kingdom of God on earth. That is to say, the growth of the church. As thousands of Jews became followers of Jesus within weeks of Jesus' resurrection. When we return to the angel's words in Daniel 7, we'll see how crucial this is to understand And how Caiaphas should have recognized the growth of the church as vindication of Jesus' claims. Proving that he really was the Son of Man and he really was now sitting at the right hand of God. But before we go back there, let me try to make sure I'm clear on what I'm saying here. First and foremost, the coming of the Son of Man is a reference to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. His enthronement at the right hand of God is what is being depicted in Daniel 7. Back in Daniel 7.13, notice that the one like of Son of Man is coming to God, not to the earth. If he is a human, then presumably he is coming from earth to heaven. As we looked at last week with the little horn and its possible connection with Antichrist, there is an already, not yet, fulfillment of all these things. The already is that Jesus has already come with the clouds from earth to heaven in his ascension. The not yet, which Jesus does refer to more frequently, is that the Son of Man will come with the clouds again. And this time he'll be coming back to the earth from heaven. This is indicated by an angel in Acts 1.11. The disciples were standing, gazing up into the sky as Jesus departed from their side. And the angel says to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The coming of the Son of Man is first and foremost a coming to God's throne to be enthroned at his right hand. Then... And only secondarily can it be viewed as a coming back. Now let's go back to Daniel 7 and pick up the angel's explanation of the heavenly courtroom scene. Look at Daniel 7, 18 again. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. The angel doesn't refer to the one like a son of man. Where we'd expect him to refer to him... He refers instead to the saints of the Most High. 
Now, if this is all we had, just verse 18, we'd have to conclude that the individual Daniel saw in the vision was simply a metaphorical representation of the saints, not really a historical individual at all. But then Daniel adds to his own description of what he actually saw in verses 21 and 22. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Daniel here clarifies that he did, in fact, see the saints on earth being attacked and overpowered by the little horn of the fourth beast. But he takes the angel's explanation and incorporates it into his description in verse 22. He doesn't mention the one like a son of man again. Instead, Daniel himself refers to judgment being given for the saints of the Most High. So, Daniel apparently understands that the individual who came into heaven and approached God's throne does indeed represent the saints on earth. With this connection between the one and the many, the individual represents the saints as a king represents his kingdom citizens. But Daniel goes through this extra description in order to ask the angel for more information about the fourth beast and the little horn. And the angel indicates that, yes, the king represented by the little horn of the fourth beast will oppress the saints on earth for a time, times, and half a time, which I argued means nothing more than that the persecution will continue for a period of time that seems long to the people being oppressed, but that God will intervene to bring it to an unexpected end. But then, in verses 26 and 27, the angel goes back to the judgment scene in heaven. Look at verses 26 and 27 again. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So the negative judgment is given first. The angel says that the verdict results in the authority or dominion of the king represented by the little horn, and by implication of the fourth kingdom itself, being removed. The angel describes its destruction in such a way that seems to allow for a long-term process rather than a sudden stop. Then the angel comments on the positive side of the judgment, that God gives the universal earthly kingdom to the people who are the saints of the Most High. But then notice the last part of verse 27. Instead of speaking of the plural saints, he uses the singular. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Either the his goes back to the Most High, mentioned right there in verse 27, or the His could go back to the one like a son of man who was depicted in the vision as receiving the kingdom in heaven on behalf of the saints on the earth. Both ways of understanding it are true, of course. So, can we pull it all together? What is the nature of the fulfillment of this heavenly vision? Daniel sees the Roman Empire 
that would rise to power about 500 years after his death, depicted as a monstrous beast, indicating God's perspective on the nature of the Roman Empire in particular, as well as fallen human kingdoms in general. The rise of rulers who would oppress God's people is depicted by the unexpected rise of a little horn with a big mouth. Several candidates from within the Roman Empire qualify for the designation, but the depiction of another ruler arising from the Greek Empire as another little horn in chapter 8 leads us to suspect that Daniel's vision in chapter 7 may intend to portray more of a pattern that recurs throughout history than to identify one specific individual. In the face of the blasphemous oppression of God's people during the Roman Empire, Daniel sees Jesus approaching God's throne to be awarded eternal dominion over humanity as the last Adam and the son of David. This happened when Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and took his rightful place on the throne at the right hand of God. The verdict has been announced both against fallen human governments and for Jesus and his followers. The saints who receive the kingdom are God's holy people. The followers of Jesus who receive their citizenship in the kingdom of God the moment they begin trusting in Jesus. Indeed, the Apostle Paul recognizes that we believers, mysteriously and spiritually, but truly occupy those other thrones in heaven the moment we begin to trust in King Jesus. Marvel at this. He writes in Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, some of the most magnificent words about our salvation in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is what happens to sinners when God saves them. He makes us alive, resurrects us from our spiritually dead state, and He seats us on those other thrones Daniel saw in his vision. If you're a Christian today, that all happened to you the moment you began to trust in Jesus. In some mysterious spiritual sense that is more true than your feelings, more true than what your eyeballs see, more real than the chair you're sitting in in this room, you right now are seated in heaven on a throne. So it is then that the outworking of both sides of the verdict takes place in history in stages. Jesus receives universal authority and begins rescuing individuals from the tyranny of the fallen human governments of all nations. But the destruction of fallen human governments awaits Jesus' return. The historical Roman Empire ended long ago through a number of historical and political and military movements. But it ceased having universal authority over its subjects as soon as it acted to crucify the true king, Jesus. Now that he's sitting on his throne, he shifts 
people's ultimate allegiance to him. For followers of Jesus, Caesar is no longer Lord. And our primary allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. Thus, the power of human kingdoms has been broken once and for all until the final destruction of fallen human government when Jesus returns. There will be tribulation and persecution against God's people. Some will come from political powers and official persecution of Christians. Some will come from within the church as false teachers and deceivers seek to lead people away from faith in Jesus. Throughout this age, those represented by the imagery of the little horn, the antichrists of history, will have a visible measure of success. All of this will indeed climax at the end of history with a final man of lawlessness, a final alliance of satanic political power with religious deception centered in an individual who will be actively wearing out the saints When Jesus returns, and at that time, Jesus will personally execute this man by merely speaking a word of condemnation, and then the citizens of the kingdom of heaven will share in reigning over this world with the king of kings through the millennium and eternally into the new creation. Those of you who've been here the last few weeks have listened to three messages from Daniel 7, and you have been very gracious and patient. I've approached this passage differently than most of you are used to, and I know that's been hard for some of you. I appreciate this congregation so much because so many of you demonstrate an interest in learning more and a humility that acknowledges that we haven't got it all figured out. I'm sure I've raised lots more questions than I've answered for some of you, and many of you are not convinced about many things that I've said. That's okay. Thanks for hanging with me. As I said two weeks ago, my disagreements with some popular preachers on the radio about how prophecy and fulfillment works out in Scripture and in history does not in any way imply that we approach the Scriptures with any different beliefs about its authority, inerrancy, or infallibility. And here I must add one more strong point of difference. And it's one that I admit I feel a very strong frustration about. Many who view this chapter pointing primarily to the rise of a final Antichrist figure at the very end of history and only to Jesus' second coming also view the saints as only referring to believing Jews, presumably Jews who will believe in Jesus during the so-called seven-year tribulation, at the very end of history. I have already indicated that I connect the saints mentioned here explicitly with the church today. I see it as special pleading to restrict the referent of the word saints in the Old Testament to either faithful Jews living before Jesus' first coming or to believing Jews who will live right before Jesus' second coming. I believe that the New Testament writers consistently use the word saints to refer to Christians primarily because they see these Old Testament prophetic references to saints as being fulfilled in the church, made up of both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, who've been made holy by believing in Jesus. We've seen how important the vision of Daniel 7 was to Jesus as he chose the title Son of Man to use most often to refer to himself. 
But this vision also has other significance in the New Testament, and some of it has to do with the mission of the church. Jesus issued the Great Commission to his disciples, and as Matthew 28, 18, and 19 records it, some of the key phrases are drawn from Daniel 7. Look at Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Daniel 7, 14, dominion was given to the Son of Man. The Greek Bible uses the same word and same phrase from Daniel 7, 14 as we find in Matthew 28, 18. The Great Commission is prefaced by Jesus asserting that he has received universal authority. This is by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. And he's about to ascend to sit on the throne at the right hand of God. Even though when he says these words, he hasn't yet taken his seat on the throne, he has earned the right through his obedience during his life on earth. He lived as a perfect human being, which demonstrated his right to rule as the last Adam, the fulfillment of everything God created humanity to be. Then he offered his life as a sacrifice in the place of sinful human beings. And then he rose from the dead on the third day. And then he spent time with his disciples for several weeks. And then finally, he ascended and was enthroned at the right hand of God, where he remains until he will return in the future to wrap up human history. We need to view Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension as not three separate events, but as a singular nexus of events. The singular action of the one who is fully God and fully human to accomplish our salvation. Thus, this statement of universal authority is the fulfillment of Daniel 7.14. But there's more. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus commands his disciples, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Making disciples of all nations is the way the Son of Man establishes His universal authority over all nations. In the Greek of Daniel 7.14, the exact phrase, all nations, is used to indicate those who will serve the Son of Man. As we saw in Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed about the stone that grew to become a great mountain that filled the whole earth which Daniel explained as God's kingdom and which Jesus identified as himself and his kingdom. So here, the vision of God's everlasting kingdom being given to the Son of Man in Daniel 7 focuses on the inauguration of that kingdom in Jesus' first coming and provides a glimpse of the consummation of that kingdom when all other kingdoms will be utterly destroyed by God's Judgment. The saints in Daniel 7 become the bridge between the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom. Even as the saints have received the kingdom with Jesus' first coming, the kingdom expands and grows as disciples make more disciples from all the nations. As one writer puts it, while Israel had been longing for the enthronement of the Danielic Son of Man for centuries, now... The transcendent hero was finally here 
now. So the risen Jesus explains the long-awaited enthronement was taking place through his own death, resurrection, and ascension. Now he was about to take the helm of the kingdom of God. But in order to complete the vision of Daniel 7.14, in order to add in the last brush strokes of the glorious portrait of the Son of Man receiving universal worship, the disciples would have to play their part by making disciples of all nations, even as they drew on His authority. But as I pointed out a few weeks ago, this mission is fraught with difficulty because Jesus also said that we disciples will be hated by all nations. Even as we go to make disciples of all nations, we will be hated by all nations. This is the outworking of the opposition of the little horn, the many antichrists that threaten, deceive, and persecute. But because Jesus is indeed sitting on his throne at the right hand of God, because he has indeed received universal authority in heaven and on earth, the mission is guaranteed to be a success. Consider one final New Testament connection. Last week we saw how the beasts of Daniel's vision serve as a backdrop and shaping influence for John's vision of beasts in the book of Revelation. Well, the heavenly scene in Daniel's vision also influences our understanding of a couple of John's visions in the book of Revelation as well. Some of you, maybe, might possibly recall my message from last Easter, which I preached in my dining room. I'm so glad to be here with you in person today. But I, last Easter, I opened up John's opening vision in Revelation 1, 9 to 20, where John saw one like a son of man, who also had some features of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. Thus, in John's opening vision, Jesus is depicted as fully divine and fully human. But in our final moments together this morning, I want to focus on what is probably my favorite passage in the whole Bible, Revelation chapter 5. Following the seven letters dictated by the risen Jesus to John for seven churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, recorded in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, John receives a vision of the heavenly throne room in chapters 4 and 5. As John describes what he saw in chapter 4, he focuses on God sitting on his throne, being worshipped by all manner of heavenly creatures, specifically worshipped for creating all things. We pick up John's description in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John, like Daniel, gets to participate in his visions. He is grieved, saddened, By what he sees, God is sitting on his throne, holding in his right hand a seven-sealed scroll. 
And there appears to be no one worthy, no one who has the right to break the seals, unfurl the scroll, and read out its contents. John weeps. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now notice that John hears of the lion of Judah and the root of David. Surely he knows this is Jesus. But from his identification in the vision, John's surely expecting now to see a lion vividly depicting the conquering Messiah. Listen to what happens next in verses 6 and 7. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. John heard that the lion was coming, but then he sees the lamb. This establishes an important pattern in the book of Revelation. Often, John will hear something, and then he will see something that looks totally different from what he was expecting. Based on what he heard about. But what he sees and what he hears are different ways of representing the same thing. I wish the ESV would have translated the first verb in verse 7 as it's normally translated. More literally, verse 7 begins, And he came and took the scroll. The Lamb came to God, sitting on the throne, as the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days, sitting on the throne in Daniel 7. John is seeing what Daniel saw. And this reflects the same historical reality. John was one of the apostles who saw Jesus go up into heaven on a cloud. But none of them saw what happened next with their own eyes. John now gets a vision reflecting what happened next. The vision is depicting the transfer of universal authority from God the Father to God the Son. Jesus is depicted as a lamb with evidence of a slit throat but who is standing upright, gloriously alive. He also has seven horns and seven eyes, symbolically depicting his universal power, universal authority, and his universal knowledge and wisdom, which he shares with his people throughout the world through the Holy Spirit. And then this lamb is worshipped. Whereas God was worshipped for creation in chapter 4, here the Lamb receives universal worship specifically for redemption. Listen to the rest of the chapter, verses 8 to 14. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, 
And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you recognize that language? People from every tribe and language and people and nation being made a kingdom and a promise of reigning on the earth. All that fits with the vision of Daniel 7. Jesus, the Son of Man, died to purchase a kingdom, the citizens of a kingdom. And those citizens are all those who trust Jesus, Jew and Gentile, from every nation of the world. These are the saints. If you're trusting this slain lamb today, you are one of the saints. Continuing on to verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, a sevenfold praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Like in Daniel's vision, there is an already not yet nature of this vision in Revelation. John hears a unified chorus made up of everybody and everything praising God and the Lamb. This aspect of the vision awaits the final fulfillment, the consummation of God's kingdom. As Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's already happened. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, that happened. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What John saw and what Paul said does not imply that all people will be saved. Today is the day to decide when and how you will bow and acknowledge the rightful rule of the Son of Man. Either you can willingly bow now, trust Him, submit to His Lordship, become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven today, or you can continue in your rebellion against this true king. Or you can continue in your apathy and disregard for what you've heard today. If you continue in that posture for the rest of your life, you will have your day in court. And you will wail. You will weep. You will gnash your teeth. But you will also bow your knee and acknowledge that he is the rightful king, the true Lord. And you will experience everlasting punishment for your rejection of him. As John said in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you these words that point us 
the right response, the only appropriate response to the events we celebrate this weekend, Good Friday through Easter, the death of a king and the resurrection of a king. Father, we need your grace to respond with the right response, faith, obedience, worship, all are due him. Would you help us turn our lives over to him, body and soul, mind and emotions, all of our resources devoted to the true king. Thank you, Father, for the great gift of your love that you would send your own son to suffer in our place, on our behalf, to endure the judgment that we all deserve. Thank you for the victorious resurrection that we celebrate and remember today. Would you help the fact of his resurrection fuel our obedience and our service and our worship for the rest of our days in this broken and weak world, these broken and weak bodies, as we look forward to a day of our own resurrection, when we can give Jesus the worship and the obedience that he deserves without the hindrance of sin, without the hindrance of distraction, without the hindrance of weakness and frailty. Thank you that that is our destiny. We worship you now, Lord. We commit our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen.